I love that story of this prayer meeting that's happening for deliverance for Peter, and that even once the deliverance is given, they're still in the prayer meeting and they're saying, no, it can't be. (laughs) Have you ever prayed a prayer like that before, where you're asking God for something, and then when it came, you could hardly believe it? You You were still skeptical, and yet God answered it? I know I've had a few like that over the years. Um... He's a good father, and when we ask, he, he hears us. Even if we sometimes ask with doubting hearts, he still hears us. He's a good father. It's amazing how he answers our prayers of his children. We've obviously been looking a lot at the subject of prayer in these past couple of weeks and focusing in on our Lord's Prayer, the one he taught us, his disciples, to pray. And so we are going to continue in that study this morning. And so before we do that, I would invite you to rise with me as a congregation, and let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Would you bow with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, seeing as it's deer hunting season, I thought it would be fitting to start off with a story this morning of a group of hunters who went out deer hunting one, one day, and they, there was a group of them, and they broke off into twos for the day, into different pairs, and they headed off into the forest hunting for their deer. Later on that night, one of the hunters returned to the camp alone, but he was staggering under the weight of a trophy eight-pound buck. While the men were ooing and awing over this beautiful trophy that the man had brought into camp, and after the congratulations had finally died down, one of the other hunters finally noticed that the man's partner was missing. And so he asked, where's Harry? Oh, Harry, came the reply. Oh, he had a stroke of some kind. He's a couple of miles back up the trail. What? You left, you left Harry out there and you carried the deer back instead? Well, said the hunter quite defensively, I figured no one was going to steal Harry. <laughs> if, there's, if there's any hunters here this morning, you could probably identify. Now... That hunter's priority may not have been quite in the correct order to be more concerned about the trophy buck than of his friend. They might have been a little out of whack. And in a similar way, we have been learning in this series, and when you pray, we've been learning that prayer is not to be of a secondary priority. It's not of a second importance. No, it is to be our top priority. Quite simply, there is no Christian life apart from a prayer life. For the Lord Jesus didn't say, and if you pray. No, he said, and when you pray. Prayer is not optional for a disciple of Jesus Christ. It is essential. But not only did our Lord teach us that praying itself is to be a top priority, he also taught us to prioritize what we pray for and also how we pray. So turn with me again to Matthew chapter 6. I know we've been looking at it a lot. You might have it memorized by now, but if you have it open, we can look at it together This morning, Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to focus in on verses 9 and 10. Here again, the the words of our Lord, the ones we just prayed together, 
where he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Now typically, when we pray that prayer as we just did, we recite it and we race through these lines fairly quickly. Not as fast as I did it last Sunday when I rattled it off in 10 seconds, but nonetheless, we pray through these lines very quickly without, I think, often catching the full weight, the full sense of what we are praying. And so I want to slow it down for us this morning to focus in on these opening lines of this prayer because Jesus prioritizes for us the top three essentials of prayer. And those are God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. Now, ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, all people ever since have been born in sin. So, being born in sin with a sinful nature, we are therefore self-centered and self-seeking by nature. And so the natural inclination of our heart is to say, my name, my kingdom, and my will. And this is why the call of Jesus has always been, at the very outset, the call has always been that if anyone would be his disciple, if anyone would come after me, Jesus said, you must die to yourself. You must deny yourself, pick up your cross, become alive to God, and follow me. And so the first call is to say, not my way, but thy way. Thy way. And so even as a disciple of Jesus Christ, someone who has done that, who has given their life fully unto God and surrender to his name and to his will, it is still incredibly easy for our prayers to focus more on ourselves, our personal desires and our plans, rather than on God, his desires and his plans. And our Lord Jesus knew that this would always be our tendency, and this would always pose a challenge for us as his followers. And so he taught us to pray that God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will would always come before our own. So let's take a closer look at these three things in order this morning. First, we're going to look at God's name. The opening of the prayer after saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now it's highly significant that the very first thing that Jesus instructed his disciples to pray about and for is God's name. This is to be the top priority. It is the the absolute essential first of prayer is to hallow, prioritize God's name. It is the first safeguard against praying only self-seeking prayers. But now, does anyone here know what does it mean? What does it mean to hallow God's name? Have you ever stopped and really thought about that? What am I doing when I say, hallowed be thy name? What does it mean? Well, to hallow, the, de- the definition of the term hallow is to make holy. That's Webster's de- definition of the word to hallow. To make holy. Now, as we learned last week, God desires for us to know him as our father. A title that is at once familiar and intimate. That plants us with confidence before him as a dearly loved child. And Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 even tells us, Therefore we should come with boldness to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and may find grace for help in times of need. And so we can come before our Father with boldness to make our requests uh, unto him. 
And because of Jesus' cleansing of our sins, we are invited to come this way before our Father's throne. However, in doing so, we are never to become irreverent or flippant towards him. We are to hallow his name with reverence, awe, and yes, even fear. Perhaps we'll gain a greater appreciation if we pause to consider the description the Apostle John relays to us in Revelation chapter 4 of God's throne room. This is the description of where we are going with boldness, but nonetheless we should not enter flippantly or casually. Verse 2, this is the description that John gives us of his revelation in chapter 4. John says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold upon their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What a scene! Can your imagination even begin to conceive what we just read? You see, our open access to our gracious and loving Heavenly Father and to His throne of grace should never diminish our esteem and our awe and, yes, our fear of who this God is that we are approaching. His name is to be holy. It is to be hallowed. And if, if you want to take time to meditate on this description in Revelation chapter 4, it is absolutely breathtaking. To go home, I challenge you, go home later today and just meditate on this passage and to think this is where we enter. Our prayers are going is before this incredible throne of God and what was just described for us from the Revelation of John. Now, when we consider this, our imagination simply cannot conceive of what this looks like, especially the fantastical creatures that are described who never cease to declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But even what we can begin to imagine of that setting, who of us would dare to go up to that, our Father's throne, chewing bubblegum, blowing bubbles, tracking our muddy boots across the crystal sea, and then go up and demand, hey, pops, I need you to do something for me. Who of us would dare to do that in this setting? We wouldn't. We simply wouldn't. And yet in our spirits, in our attitudes, how often don't we do exactly that? And so to guard against this, Jesus taught us that before asking anything of our Father, who, yes, is our Father, who, yes, wants to hear our prayers, before we do that, we must hallow his name. We must give him the respect and fear that he is due. 
And now I know that at first glance it seems as though love and fear might be incompatible. They seem like at odds to each other. But that's not actually true. For example, who here would say that as a father, you both love, pardon me, not as a father, (laughs) as a child, you both loved and feared your father? Would anyone agree with that statement, that as a child you both loved and feared your father? I will say that, and my dad's here this morning, so he can vouch for it. (laughs) Now, at first glance, yes, this seems incompatible, and, and I know this won't necessarily ring true for everyone. But if you were blessed as I was to have a good father, you equally loved him for his kindness, and you feared him rightfully for his discipline. And now I know that corporal punishment has gone out of vogue, and you've got to be careful about these sorts of things these days, but I'll just say that there was a time in my childhood when mom might say something to me like, wait until dad gets home, and that would strike a holy fear into my heart. (laughs) Because it was always better if mom just disciplined me on the spot than having to wait for dad to get home. It was always preferential that if mom just disciplined, it wasn't as bad. But if we had to wait for dad to get home, we knew we'd really crossed the line. And in a similar way, we are called to love God, our Father, with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, with all our strength. And yet, at the same time, the Word instructs us over and over again to worship and revere and, yes, fear His holy name. And as the psalmist asked, Who is like the Lord our God? who sits enthroned on high. Who is like him? He is both as gentle as a father taking a child on his knee and as fierce as a mighty warrior going into battle. He is as gentle as a whisper and as raging as a consuming fire. He is the lover of our souls and yet has a perfect hatred of our sin. He is the one who died to bring us our salvation And he is the one who will one day return, bringing judgment and wrath upon all those who have rejected him. Who is like our God? Who would we even begin to compare to him, our great God and Savior? The answer is self-evident. Absolutely nothing and no one can ever even begin to compare unto our great God. How incredible is it that our Father is the Holy, Holy Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is our dad in heaven. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. How incredible that this is to whom we pray every day. And when we're going through the day and we're thinking, Lord, I need help with this and I need help with that, remember who it is that we are connecting to, the King of kings. And so we must always remember, hallowed be thy name. It's about his name. And to glorify it. Secondly, Jesus taught us the next priority of prayer. God's kingdom. He said, thy kingdom come. We say it so quickly, we just keep going. But what does it mean, thy kingdom come? Well, the reality is that as Christians living on earth today, we live in a constant state of tension. We're caught between two realities of a kingdom that is and is yet to come. You see, the first reality is that God's kingdom has already come spiritually into our hearts through faith. But the second reality is that his kingdom has yet to come physically to this earth. And so for now, we live here today caught between these two dates. 
the date where we entered his kingdom by faith, spiritually in our hearts, he has taken up residence, and we are citizens of his kingdom right now. And we're supposed to live it out every day as though his kingdom is already physically here on earth. However, it has yet to come physically to this earth. And so we live in a state of tension. The kingdom that is and is yet to come. We are terrestrial citizens whose feet are still planted on terra firma. Now the word kingdom in the Greek means rule or reign. And in Luke chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is within you, which is what I was referring to, the spiritual kingdom. And so to pray thy kingdom come in the first reality is to invite and ask that God would take up spiritual residence and rule within our hearts. It is a prayer for salvation and for kingdom citizenship. But to pray thy kingdom come in the second and the ultimate reality is to ask, and mark this, it is to ask for nothing less than Jesus' return. And that day, that great and fierce day of the Lord that the ancient prophets all saw and foretold and that John describes so vividly in all of its majestic and terrifying detail, that is what we pray for when we utter this short, crisp sentence, Thy kingdom come. And in that day of the Lord, the trump of the archangel will sound, and with a mighty shout, the dead in Christ will rise first. They will get up and then fly up to be together with all the saints, together with the Lord in the air. And for those safe by faith in Jesus Christ, this day of the Lord will be a day like none other that we have ever experienced or will ever experience. It will be a day unlike any other, a day of joy. But, and this is a a huge shift, but for all others who have not entered into the first reality, who have not by faith received the inner dwelling of the Lord to become spiritual citizens of that physical kingdom that is yet to come, that fierce day of the Lord will be a day like none other because it will be a day of judgment and a day of reckoning like none other in the history of the world. It will be a day where God's wrath will be poured out in full measure on all of the sin and the wickedness and the evil that has been done in the nations of all those who have rejected his name and rebelled against him. Martin Luther once said that if most Christians really understood what they were saying when they prayed, thy kingdom come, they would shudder with fear. It will be a day of reckoning. The seven bowls of God's wrath will be emptied in full measure. And every person who has ever lived will have their turn before God's judgment throne to give an account for their life. In John chapter 3, verse 36, the verses that we most often don't quote when we're quoting John 3.16, but they're all part of the same message. John 3, verse 36, Jesus continued in his message to Nicodemus. He said to him, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This eternal life is citizenship in the kingdom. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. No citizenship, and those who are outside of the kingdom will receive the wrath and the judgment of God as they deserve. Now let me just ask you this morning. How often, when you pray the words, thy kingdom come, 
does it come to mind that you are inviting God's wrath and judgment upon the world for its sin? Is that usually what comes to mind for you? It's not what comes to mind for me, I will confess. This is not the first thing that comes to mind for me. But when I look at this and I study this, it is extremely sobering. To pray thy kingdom come serves as a constant reminder that I must be doing everything in my power to help others believe in Jesus and receive kingdom citizenship as well. Because that day is coming. As certain as God's word is true and that he cannot lie, God's kingdom is coming. And as for all generations, Jesus' return is nearer now than when we first believed. So may we not only pray, but may we prepare for that day. And not only prepare our own hearts, but to do whatever we can to help prepare the hearts of others for that day that they too could be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. It's about his name, it's about his kingdom, and it will be established for all of eternity, physically, one day. And so we must prepare for that day, even as we pray for it. Thirdly, it's about his will. Thy will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. Now, can you imagine for a moment, we just were picturing God's throne room, There's all of the 24 elders around the throne. There's the the creatures around the throne. There's the hosts of, of angels around the throne singing God's praises for eternity. And can you just imagine in that setting, God is sitting upon his throne and he turns to the angel Michael and he says, Michael, I need you to do something for me. And can you imagine Michael replying, hold on just a minute, I'm kind of busy with something right now. Can you imagine that? Would that even be possible? No. We cannot imagine something like that happening. For God's will is executed and enacted perfectly in heaven. The angels live at his beck and call, literally. Every moment of every day they live to serve, and so nothing delights their ear more than the Lord to say to them, I need you to do something for me. I have a mission for you. I have an assignment. And the only reply, the instant reply is, yes, Lord, your will be done. And so when we pray, thy will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven, that's what we're praying for. That when God says, I want something accomplished, I want you to do something for me, the only reply is an instant, yes, Lord, thy will be done. So when he looks at me and he looks at you and he says, hey, I've got an assignment for you. I want you to do something for me. There is simply no argument, no hesitation, no disobedience. Now, if you're anything like me, you failed more than a few times in this regard, especially with the hesitation component. So often I'm thinking, is this really your will, Lord? I need to discern. And he's saying, no, it is my will. Just go and do it. And I'm hemming and hawing over whether I should really go through with this. But... I'm so thankful in this regard for God's mercy and grace that he is patient with us, that he is long-suffering, and he gives us so many chances. But when we recognize that, yes, this is his will, and even if we have tarried, that we repent of delay, we repent of our excuses, and we come to him, we confess, and we say, yes, Lord, your will, and nothing less. I am here for your service. And in order for that to be accomplished in our lives, 
In order for that to be accomplished in our families, in this church, in our town, in our nation, then that requires you and I, it requires all of us praying from our hearts, thy will be done. And then it requires us obeying in action to do what he asks of us. That it be done, not just with words, but with deeds and in action. We have to do what he has asked us to do. At a meeting of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Bobby Richardson, a former New York Yankee second baseman, he offered up a prayer that is classic in brevity and in poignancy. And this is what he prayed at that meeting. Dear God, your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Amen. Your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Doesn't that just about cover the whole thing? It covers all the bases. And as has been said by many others, many different ways, prayer is not aligning God to our will. It is aligning our will to his. Does that make sense? We are not trying to align God to our will be done on earth. No, we are aligning our hearts to God's will being done on earth. I, I read a great illustration to this of a man who was, was on a raft. And on the raft, he was, he was out drifting away from shore and the current was taking him further and further away from shore and finally he realized what was happening he had a rope with a hook on it he he whirled it around like a lasso he threw out the hook towards the shore and he pulled with all of his might and he pulled and he pulled and he pulled until finally he was back alongside the shore safe and sound someone on shore saw him there and said wow it's a good thing you pulled yourself back to shore just in time or the current would have taken you away And the man looked at him and said, what do you mean I pulled myself back to shore? I pulled the shore back to myself. (laughs) Oh, he-man, right? Isn't that so often how we think of prayer? We think, oh, we pulled God to our side, to our way of looking at things. No, 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 no. Prayer is pulling ourselves back into alignment, close to God. That is prayer. And so when we pray, thy will be done, we are saying, Father, take complete control of my life and do with it whatever you will for your glory. But I wanted to give you fair warning that this prayer, if we truly mean this prayer, it comes with a cost. There is a fable told that once upon a time in the heart of an ancient kingdom, there was a beautiful garden. And there in the cool of the day, the master of that garden would walk. Of all the plants in the garden, the most beautiful and most beloved was the gracious and noble bamboo. Year after year, bamboo grew yet more noble and more gracious, conscious of his master's love and watchful delight, but modest and gentle as well. Now once upon a day, the master himself drew near to contemplate his bamboo with eyes of curious expectancy. And Bamboo, in a passion of adoration of his master, bowed his great head to the ground in loving greeting. The master spoke, Bamboo, Bamboo, I would use you. Bamboo flung his head to the sky in utter delight. The day of days had come, the day for which he had been made, the day to which he had been growing hour by hour, the day in which he would find his completion and his destiny in his master's service. His voice came low and humble, yet filled with joy. Master, I am ready. Use me however you wish. 
Bamboo, the master's voice, was grave. I would have to take you and cut you down. A trembling of great horror shook Bamboo. Cut, cut me down? Me, whom you, master, has made most beautiful in all the garden? Cut me down? Oh, not that, not that. Use me for the joy, use me for the glory, O oh, master, but please do not cut me down. Beloved Bamboo, the master's voice grew graver still. If I do not cut you down, I cannot use you. The garden grew still. Wind held his breath. Bamboo slowly bent his proud and glorious head. There was a whisper. Master, if you cannot use me other than to cut me down, then do your will and cut away. Bamboo, beloved bamboo, I would cut your leaves and branches from you also. Oh, master, spare me. Cut me down and lay my beauty in the dust. But would you also have to take from me my leaves and branches also? Bamboo, if I do not cut them away, I cannot use you. The sun hid his face. A listening butterfly glided fearfully away, and Bamboo shivered in terrible expectancy, whispering low, Master, then cut away. Bamboo, bamboo, there is one more thing. I would yet split you in two and cut out your heart, for if I cut not so, I cannot use you. Then Bamboo bowed to the ground, Master, Master, then cut and split. And so the master of the garden took bamboo and cut him down and hacked off his branches and stripped off his leaves and split him in two and cut out his heart. And lifting him gently, the master carried bamboo to where there was a spring of fresh sparkling water in the midst of the dry fields. Then putting one end of the broken bamboo in the spring and the other end into the water channel of the field, the master gently laid down his beloved bamboo And the spring sang welcome, and the clear sparkling waters raced joyously down the channel of bamboo's torn body into the waiting and parched fields, where they were nourished. The rice was planted, and as the days went by and the shoots grew, the harvest came, and all were fed. In that day, bamboo, once so glorious in his stately beauty, was yet more glorious in his brokenness and in his humility. For in his beauty he was life abundant, but in his brokenness he became a channel of abundant life, nourishing his master's world. Just as it was for our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane who prayed, Yet not my will, but thine be done. It was a costly prayer. And his glory was stripped away, and he was broken for us. And by his brokenness on that tree... When he prayed, thy will be done, he brought life-giving water to our souls for each one of us because he yielded himself fully to his master's will. Make no mistake, to pray thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a costly prayer. It was for our Lord Jesus, and it may well be for us as well. It may well be one that leads us through sorrow and suffering, but even so, we can rest assured that no matter the cost today, that when we bask in the glow of our Father's eternal glory, it will have been worth the journey. It will. And as hard as it might be to say, then Lord, cut away, we will not regret that day. No, for all of eternity, we will be thankful that we prayed, Thy will be done. 
And in the end, there can really be only two mantras to life. It is either my name, my kingdom, and my will, or it is God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. And so the choice is ours. Which way will we choose? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, our master, we too delight in you being our father. We delight in your love. We delight in all of your blessings. But, O oh Lord, we too fear being cut away. We fear being chiseled down. We fear the wounds which sometimes come to us as we say, Lord, thy will, and nothing less and nothing else. But, Lord, we know that there is no other way and that you, our gracious Father, will do so for your glory and for our eternal good. That even if in the short term it seems painful, O Lord, for eternity, we will look at you and we will say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for cutting away that which didn't belong so that I could be used in your service. And so, Lord, this morning we pray nothing less than thy name, thy kingdom, and thy will. We pray, O Lord, that even as we are sobered by the fact that we know that your day is coming and that for those of us who are citizens of your kingdom, that will be a great and glorious day. But Lord, we also recognize it will be a day of judgment for all those who have not put faith in your name. And so, Father, we here today commit ourselves to this task of proclaiming your wonderful and your glorious and your holy name to the nations which includes maybe even today our neighbors and maybe even tomorrow our co-workers so that your name might be praised, so that your name might be received in personal faith so that others can enter your kingdom and on that day will be found in you. So increase our witness, Lord, in this community as a church, collectively and individually. Give us opportunities to point to you and, Lord, may we be obedient to do your will and nothing less. Help us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.